it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And particularly this week, Britannomyces, and whether it belongs in our beer at all. That might be a surprising topic for brewers, with barrel ageing and working with Brett increasingly seen as part of the high art of brewing. But my conversation today is with someone who sees Britannomyces as a fault, killing the sense of place of a beer. Tony Harper has been a restaurateur, is a wine and food writer, co-owner of Craft at Red Hill and also Cooperoo, two of Brisbane's leading bottle shops, and is also a passionate lover of IPA. He also has a decided antipathy towards Britannomyces, something that he shares with many wine experts. Over the years, I've had some great discussions privately with Tony about the topic, debating the differences between beer and wine and whether we should approach them as such, and I've long wanted to share some of these ideas via beer as a conversation. While I don't agree with Tony, I do sort of get where he is coming from, and I really try to understand where he is coming from, and he does raise some really interesting ideas about the role of progress in brewing and in winemaking. As always, it's a wide-ranging conversation that delves into a host of other topics, not least of which is how to get ranged in his bottle shop craft. And this is my conversation with Tony Harper. Tony Harper, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and, well, this is going to be a little bit of a wine as a conversation too, I'd imagine. But for those uh, of our listeners who maybe don't know Craft at Red Hill, which uh, you know I unashamedly think is one of Brisbane's best bottle shops, um, what is your background? You know, you're a restaurant reviewer, you've run restaurants, you're a wine enthusiast, you love beer, you're a boxing enthusiast. What's to tell us your backstory? Uh, I don't want to go too far back because <laughs> it'll take all day, but... In, in terms of sort of beer and wine, um, yes, I came out of um, the restaurant game. Well, in fact, I, no, I was in bottle shops, then in restaurants. I opened Denise Wine Bar in 2000 and then um, sort of crew after that, um, which wasn't my money, but um, I had a lot to do with the, you know, the esoterics of it. Um, and then, you know, a string of other ones. And then I, I got kind of tired of spending hours with people. <laughs> well, they got <laughs> pissed and I didn't. So um, I went back into retail um, with the Wine Emporium and then opened craft at Red Hill in 2012, I think. So we're eight years in here and then that we did... Good. Cooperu two years ago. You were certainly ahead of the curve. Um, the craft beer had really only just started to get a little bit of ground in Brisbane. Yeah, look, I got a I got a taste for it um, with the wine emporium where we'd you know we'd start. I can't remember the name. You and I were talking about um, the guy that Dan Ricard, Dave worked, Andrews, Dave Andrews, and um, Inspire. Yeah, he opened my eyes to so much you know good beer and you know particularly sort of west coast american beer and yep. and coming from you know the the ground of of forex and vb and asahi it was like this whole wonder world so when we did craft our um our mo was um artisan in in spirits in wines um 
and in beers, and we, we'd seen the, this sort of potential for craft beer. But it, but it was also, Matt, th- thinking about veering as far away from chains as we could. And back then, Dan Murphy's didn't have a craft beer, apart from Sierra Nevada. Yep. Um, you know, within its walls. And, and that's changed a lot now. And, and that's one of the things, because you always stocked beers here at Craft that you couldn't get anywhere else. And then, because I, I, I would imagine as a small independent retailer, it would be very hard to be competing when, when you are carrying the same lines as a big retailer like um, Dan Murphy's. Yeah, you, you get stuck between a rock and a hard place. You either, you either make some money and look like robbers, um, or you make no money and that's that's you know i'm still confounded by most of the queensland pubs you know off license bottle shops that they're like mini dan murphy's and i think why why because they get the um rebates and uh, is my read on it it's just one of the things they just make no money okay yeah i don't i I don't think I, i don't think that most of the independently owned pubs their bottle shops, and I'm talking, I'm generalising, and I'm talking most of them, yep. not all, um, but they, you know, they operate on, you know, the smell of an oily rag. I, I really don't think they make money. But you also, one of the things I've learned by observing uh, is you can't just fill your fridges with whatever crazy beer is uh, that the reps are flogging if you don't have staff behind the counter who can talk to it. 100%. And, um, yeah. you, know, you, you need to stock things that will sell without that intervention. Oh, you do, but you've also got to have staff who can um, talk because I think you know, craft beer nerds, of which you're one and I'm one in my own you know, sort of limited drinking windows, but, but you know, craft beer nerds want to experiment and they'll come in three or four times a week and they want different things in there all the time otherwise they get really bored oh nothing new this week so you, you've got to keep it fluid and moving and you've got to have staff who understand those beers and can guide people with them and so i, I guide people in the ipa version <laughs> and reds <laughs> but when it comes to sours i'm like nah you need to talk to rocky or yep. to mel or to you know someone else who drinks them but it's because it, that's a, a big part of it. Where I, I guess you do cater to the enthusiast, but you're also the local for a, a fairly big suburban yeah, area, and so correct, people who yeah. don't necessarily consider themselves beer geeks but are looking for a recommendation um, come looking to your staff to find out. Oh, I had this last week. What's like it? Oh, even it even goes, um, you know, to, to a bit more basic than that. Where you know, I had a guy two days ago at Cooper who came in and, and said, look. I normally drink Corona or I know you don't stock it. What am I going to like? And I love that. I mean, there's a, there's a really traditional big brand drinker who's who's just making that little step into craft beer world. And he knew that you know it's it's fraught with danger. He didn't want he didn't want you know giant hops and all of that. He wanted a Corona like thing. So you know. And what him, did you recommend? Oh look, I honestly <laughs> can't remember. But I took him to the sort of Lager Pilsner. Yep. Um, neck of the woods, and I gave him local. It might have been a ballistic lager or something. Okay, but you know, got into something into something crisp and clean and delicious. How hard is it for, as an independent bottle shop 
how hard is it for you to because I noticed that you've still got um, Volta, for example, they're they're, they're lagering a couple of their beers. You know, they they sold. Is it one that you can't be too robust? Yeah, you know, despite ninety five percent of your um, range is uh, independent. Um, yeah. So in the early early days, you know, we actually kept a couple of cases of. VB and Forex and stuff tucked away down the back because 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 people craft, want it they'll ask for it they will ask for it and and here's the thing that you know that craft beer guys can be some of them can be oh they've got Forex and just walk out that's the thing so yeah. so you've got to keep it hidden um, things like Bolter like God it's it's big it's a big brand yep. for us um, and has been since the day it launched um, so so the fact that its ownership's changed I don't think. Um, affects our willingness to keep it. And, you know, Matt, Bolter and Stone and Wood I see as these incredible gateways for conventional beer drinkers to come across Mm. to the craft camp. And you'd almost be hurting that level of consumer if, if you're not stocking it. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think those brands are so important. I mean, they do. They bring people in. If we're quoting for, you know, sort of weddings or parties or whatever and people want volume of beer and I'm not going to give them a, a sort of seven and a half percent IPA that two people are going to want to drink they, yeah. they they want something a bit more middle of the road and non-confrontational and that's where those you know those brands are really good how about um, and actually this is all stuff I hadn't planned to talk about uh, on, on this chat um, but seeing we've got on to retail how do you feel about um, small craft breweries? You know that you and other independent retailers like you become incubators for them, and then they grow. Um, and you know, as they need to grow, they need to go wide. And then suddenly you find them being ranged competitively. Um, it drives me freaking nuts. <laughs> I mean, it, look, it, it's uh, Matt. It's a natural part of um, business evolution, I think. And you know, agree. And it's not just with. Um, beers, but you know we seek out wines from you know little wineries all over Australia and and spirits and things stuff that doesn't come into Queensland. So we'll ship it up, range it, um, promote it, and then eighteen months later they've got a distributor up here and it's everywhere. And you know we we tear a hair out, um, <laughs> you know just because it's kind of frustrating, but it's also really good for those people so i think that sort of organic growth of a beer companies wine companies spirit companies is you know it's fantastic to watch one of the things we wanted to, we wanted to talk about sour beers and you, you've already indicated that it's not you're not a fan a of them but, <laughs> but before we do the, the the first time that we actually met was at a beer versus wine dinner at Lybird. Um, yes. And I came so out swinging. It. You did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you think did. I, I think I surprised you a little bit yeah, having a, a go at, at wine. But tell me, uh, and I love the way that you uh, sort of changed tack and sort of came back and sort of gave an incredibly eloquent defence of wine. So maybe tell us what is wine? And, you know, what should wine be, and what is wine, and what you know, what what is the magic of wine? Okay, so the, the I mean, let's start with the. With the hard bit, um, a winemaker gets one crack, or even before that, if you're if you're going to put in a vineyard, um, it's kind of a five-year project before 
you're pulling a commercial quantity of grapes off that vineyard. Um, and then you get one crack a year at it. So um, if, if, if things go wrong with the growing of the grapes or with the season or the bushfires or, um, you know, rot sets in or anything like that, um, or even if you have really healthy grapes and you stuff it up in the winery, that's it for the year. You know, you get you get one chance. And so every bottle of wine is a reflection of the years that have gone into that vineyard. Um, and this is, um, here we're talking about, you know, sort of decent wine. We're talking about um, single estate um, wines rather than sort of homogenous blends. Um, and, and it's also a reflection of that season and a reflection of, you know, the winemaker and what they were thinking and what they were doing. And I think really, really good winemaking is very transparent and lets the, the grapes and the season and the vineyard talk um, rather than obscuring it with sort of oak and, and artefact and technique. Um, so, so that to me is the beauty of wine. So if, you, if there's a, you know, let's take Cullen's, Kevin John Chardonnay, for example, um, if you were to line up 10 or 15 vintages of that wine, um, they have this sort of familial context um, because Vanya Cullen's making them, they're coming off the same patch of dirt and very little changes in the winemaking, but each of them is different because of the, the vintage that's happened. So it's, it's the sort of the scarcity of opportunity, um, but also the fact that, that wine and grapes are a really good window into the soil on which they were grown, the place in which they were grown and you know the conditions of that vintage that's very similar to what you said because i I love to reduce wine to being an accident of nature you know you've got sugar in a bag and you stand on that grape yeah and the yeast will ferment it it go yeah it it won't be grange hermitage but you're going to have fermented grape juice yeah you are and you know there's there's so many variables i mean uh, are you in in the purest sense you're using you'll use the yeast that's on that grape um, and on your hands and in your winery and all of that. But if you're a commercial winery, you're going to seed yeast because it's a lot safer and you know it's going to carry out the fermentation the way you want it to. And and that's, you know, with wine, there's so many variables or shortcuts or decisions a winemaker can or, um, or may not make. But of course, one of the things you don't want in your wine is Britannomyces. Yes, which you is... don't. No, 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 Matt, that's one of the things you don't want anywhere. <laughs> and here we go. And, <laughs> here we go. And here we go. So, because yeah. you, you don't think that um, Brett has a place in beer either. I don't think Britannia, like, I know that a lot of beers um, shout about having Britannomyces in them. And I know a lot of brewers get excited by Britannomyces and I know a lot of beer drinkers get excited by Britannomyces. And I think um, I think there's a naivety to that. And, and you know, th- this is just my theory. Um, the, the modern New World wine industry um, is far older and far more experienced than the modern new world craft beer industry and if we rewind 
20 years. So here's an example. Um, in 1993, it was my first year wine judging and I was an associate at Adelaide Wine Show and I remember bounding up to Brian Crozer going, my God, this smells like Bordeaux. And that's because the wine was Bretty, which I didn't realise at the time, <laughs> but it smelt like Bordeaux. So, so European wines have been riddled with Britannomyces for you know hundreds of years, for centuries, and um, it's only recent thinking that you know because you might line up a dozen Bordeaux and go, well, hang on, those all smell the same. That one smells different. That one smells different, um, and. You know, 25 years ago, it was isolated that it was a strain of yeast called, you know, Decora botanomyces, and, and that it um, put these compounds into the wine that kind of homogenised all the wines. And in doing so, takes away everything I was just talking about that makes wine great. So a sense of place, a sense of season. It all smells of a rogue yeast. And my theory is that the beer movement... Whereas the wine, the wine movement's gone, hang on, all of those things smell the same coming out of Bordeaux or Burgundy or Spain um, or Italy. Oh, it's Britannomyces. So therefore what we thought was a traditional smell is actually a spoilage smell. And the wines out of Tuscany and out of Bordeaux and out of Burgundy that don't have that spoilage yeast show their sight, show everything Terroir, we want like from wine. Sweet, yeah. yeah. And I think what beer drinkers and brewers have done have said, oh, wow, these Belgian, these Belgian beers have Britannomyces in them, which has arrived there through the same accident that they've arrived into European wines. And the brewers have gone, great, I want to make Belgian-style beers, so I must infect it with a spoilage yeast. But that, see, that, to me, that's one of the things, you know, trying to grapple with the difference between beer and wine. And you know, I used to passionately argue that beer is a new wine and it should be revered until you sort of start to realise that one of the things that makes beer so important to civilization is the thing that also makes it so pedestrian or so, um, you know, everyday in that you only get one crack every year to make your wine. Brewers have to replicate the same thing day in, day out because we can store the ingredients. We, we ship ingredients from around the country. They're not grown. Wine is made where the grapes are grown traditionally beer you can ship the grain halfway around the world and so it doesn't have that true terroir sense of place no. yeah it doesn't have that yeah. sense of place and so even hearing you talk about uh Britannomyces taking that sense of place away doesn't harm beer because you know a, a pilsner but it homogenizes it matt that's the that's the thing is that you know Britannomyces homogenizes and it, and it overrides Almost everything, and even texture, it even gets into texture, but it overrides aroma, it overrides flavour. So, so the effort of, of putting in hops and malts and you know, things to build your beer um, become, all, all of that becomes overridden by you know, what I call the sort of faecal stink of, <laughs> of Britannomyces. And it is, it's faecal. Yeah, yeah. It well, that's one of yeah. the horse blanket and all of that. Yeah. But I guess, you know, you're not going to put Brett into a Pilsner, like a classic Pilsner that is highly recognised as a style. Um, but you know, most Australian brewers, if they want to make a Pilsner, they're going to get noble hops. They're going to use the all of the ingredients to try and replicate that. You know what's going thing. to happen unless you are Russian River Brewing, where they where they've hermetically sealed their 
the Britannomyces bees off from their, their wild bees off from the rest of it is you will get infection within your brewery. And so you will end up with Brady Pilsners. Well, and they won't be able to enter them in a competition because they're, you know. They won't be Pilsners, yeah. Maybe they'll create something that people love. And and, and that's one of the things that fascinates me with the whole um, fault or feature um, of, uh, of a beer. And most of the brewers who are playing around with Brett are trying to replicate, as you say, Belgian beers. But yeah. so, so here's my here's my thing on that. I don't believe that Belgian beers are intentionally bready, and there are plenty of Belgian beers that aren't. Yep. Um, but but it's it's the same, you know. For example, you know, Bass Philip wines mm-hmm. um, out of Gippsland. Some of them are sublime and some of them are bretty. But let's say that you and I were embarking on a Pinot project and said, oh, you know, we need to make something that looks like a Gippsland Pinot and then you taste two Bass Phillips. Oh, we've got to have bret. (laughs) Okay. And, you you know, it's... I don't think Belgian beer is defined by bret. Um, People have just conned themselves that this stuff has accidentally got in there, just like it got into Bordeaux's and just like it got into Burgundy's. So, therefore, that's what Belgian beer is tastes like no just the bad ones <laughs> well but obviously you know to, to to me it's um i look at the evolution of most things you, you look at a peated whiskey and you know you, and i don't do accents but you know you never had some <laughs> scottish guy saying you know this whiskey <laughs> this whiskey that we make is pretty good but imagine how good it would taste if we had peat in there well when they dried the malt their heat source was um peat and so the grain took on, the, the malt took on a peated character, and so whiskies from that place had a peatiness to it. But then as uh, the revolution, you know, industrial revolution came along and we were able to sort of create low stink, um, you know, drying mechanisms, um, whiskey, and some people preferred the old style, um, some people hate it, and some people describe peated whiskies as being band-aids. I, I see that as part of the diversity that, that you can offer. And Belgian brewers, as they came to identify um, Brett, they started to make cleaner tasting beers and some of those took off. But keeping that heritage isn't necessarily a bad thing or celebrating a fault. That, that's the way I approach it. And uh, you know, again, I, I can completely understand your point of view, but I'd give beer a pass because it is a different product. To It is. To me, there's... You know, I love the sort of, you know, Pete iodine whiskey analogy. Um, that's fully controllable. Um, and I defy anyone to, w- without pasteurising mm-hmm. um, or, or sterile filtering, and I, I doubt that any craft brewer's going to go to those extents, mm. um, to, to harness the growth of Britannomyces. And that's the thing, it's uncontrollable. And it, it, it will grow in can, in bottle, um, and what's the downside to that, though? Two downsides. One is if you're using Brett as a complexing agent, um, it, it can very easily run from you know, part of the myriad spectrum of flavours and aromas you've got in that beer to the one dominating flavour and aroma, mm. and, and so it, it just overtakes it. It's like the loud, the loud girl in the class um, who disrupts everything. And, and the other is... It's fecal, Matt. So it's not. It's not. There's nothing pretty about it. There's nothing attractive. You know. It's. I often say, if I want to smell bread, I'll just stick my finger up my buttons and sniff it. You know. It's, this is not quite that bad. Well, it can be. I, I mean, it can be horrid. So, but that, but when you say that, is is that the the winemakers 
um, trained palate that's been trained to avoid it. Yeah. Um, that you never want to. I think so. Overcome. I, mean, I am. I'm so biased against it, and you know that comes from twenty five years of mm. wine judging and um, and looking at. And, and I have learned to really hate it as a as an aroma and as a flavour, and I, I pick it up very easily but you know but I'm, I'm trying to talk to you from a common sense oh no no and, and that's where well. like there is that there is that element that you don't want to come to like it because of the, the effect it'll have on yeah. your wine tasting oh, I'm never no I'm never <laughs> I'm never going to like it. <laughs> but, but it but it's a philosophical so, approach you bring so, to it as well I like let's rewind god I can't even remember when this this was but this would have been in the early 90s and I went to Rockford Winery okay um, for the first time ever and I tasted their black Shiraz, which, you know, is so hard to get. And anyway, we hopped back in the car and we, we were 15 minutes down the road. And I went, oh, quick, turn around. I can still taste that wine. And it had this incredible sort of earthy, funky thing. And I said, I've got to get me some of that. Mm-hmm. And then that was just bread. Okay. That's what I was tasting was yeah. bread. Yeah. And, you know, that was before. But you liked it. That was yeah, the I thing. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. And... And I can actually show Bretty wines to punters, and know they'll they'll be on them because they've got this um, this sort of funk and this interest. But it was because with Brett, it fascinates me that uh, the 2010 vintage of the Crown Ambassador Reserve that was famously accidentally yeah, um, infected. Yeah. But it went through all of their taste panels, and at no stage did any of these highly sensorily trained brewers. Uh, identify that it was Brett because it just wasn't on their radar. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. So to, to you, what is your... Um, you've told us what good wine is. To you, what is your um, philosophical uh, approach to beer? What should beer be? Gee, that's a big one. I mean, because like I've said, I, I drink fairly narrowly, but... And on the record, you, you love IPAs. You I love, love IPAs. And, um, but, but Matt, I was in California... Um, in January this year, January, February, whenever, January I think it was, and I went to Russian River and um, I bought myself a case of Pliny and I, but I also bought, I also bought um, Dogfish Head 90 Minutes, I bought um, Bear Republic Race of Five because I love it. So mm. I, I had, I had a, a kitchen full of really good Californian IPAs and I ended up with this drinking progression every afternoon that I would never, ever, ever start with a Pliny because you couldn't go backwards. Yep. Um, and and once you'd had the Pliny, you, there's nothing else, you know, that comes close to it, I don't think, um, in terms of IPA globally, or, or not that I've tried. And, and it's not about, you know, weight and richness and size because it's not a massive IPA, it's just... Perfectly, perfectly, perfectly balanced yeah. um, in terms of aroma, in terms of mouthfeel. Um, th- there's just something so um, carefully detailed about it. And and to me, that's what makes really good beer. I mean, for, for me, IPAs should have, you know, a lot of the Australian ones, I, I think, are, are, are too much um, sort of resiny hop. And not enough malt behind it, and mm. there, you know that there needs to be a balance of both. You need lots of hop there, um, but you've got to have richness to balance that. And I think, you know, we often fall down um, against the really good Californians. 
from but, that respect. And and to me, like that's the great debate um, in, in the brewing industry. On one hand, and Ian Watson, um, who brews at Slipstream up here, yeah. and, he, he and, loved, and his IPA is banging. He made well, and Race of Five was used to be one of his favourites. Um, yeah. And but yeah, he he used to talk, talk about the if you said to a Belgian brewer, your beer tastes just like um, you know Pierre's down the road, um, he would get upset because. You, he doesn't want to be the same. But if you said to a German brewer, your Pilsner is just like Hans is down the road, he'll just say, of course it is, yeah, it's yeah, a Pilsner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, both of those have really, really strong brewing traditions. Um, and, and, and I don't know which one, you know, should a brewer try and emulate Pliny and try and make a carbon copy of Pliny or should they no, try and... do their own thing, yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's the thing. There is such a skill in replicating. Um, yeah. I've never seen anyone come. I mean, every now and then I'll pick up a, you know, a new IPA that someone's bought in and, and, you know, I can smell a really similar hot profile, but I've never come across anything that, um, that has that whole package together. But to me, the philosophical underpinnings of beer are that it is something that you store the ingredients and then you try and make the same beer throughout the year um, and, and yeah. that's what's made it so successful and great but you've, you've got guys like um, Topher at Wildflower who are doing really interesting things and they are staking um, although you may not like it <laughs> <laughs> no look we sell lots of Wildflower and yeah. they are they are like they're not things I want to drink because they are bready but yeah. um, I do admire you know and, and La Serene's you know the, mm. the way they've they've um um, and two met at all, you know the, mm. the way they've they've really gone down their their own little alleyways and and specialised in them. I think it's fantastic. Instead of doing here's our IPA, here's our Pilsner, here's our Lager, here's our Red Ale. But even then, they're, they're like a, driving around France, and you know you go to a uh, like a brasserie, and they'll have a brune, and they'll have a blonde, and they'll have a blanche, and you know then they'll have their Noel, their Christmas beer, or whatever. And even though they've got the same rough stylistic, you know, they all have a a, a sort of house yeah, character, connect, yeah, yeah, character um, well, them, yeah. which I love. But again, it's you know it, it, it's something that if you tried to do it in Australia, where we've been conditioned that well, forex whether it comes in the Queensland brewery or the New South Wales brewery or must whatever, taste the same, it must yeah. taste the same. And we, we that's the thing brewers say well that is actually a skill in itself and and it is so you know what 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 should brewers be shooting for in you know in, in the world of tony harper oh look i think you've done you know two i think the forexes should be making forex and mm. and and keeping it exactly the same because that and that's you know you, you can use a wine analogy for that or or, or even spirits where um you're talking large production out to a mass market and there's plenty of wines that, that you know geese and sauvignon blanc for example you know a lot of marble sauvignon blanc that that needs to have you know that exact character year in year out because it's it's drinkers aren't that discerning and they that's what i like to drink and i want it to taste the same every time but i think you know you and i are talking here about craft brewers and i think craft brewers need to be a little bit more, you know, two steps towards the wine um, vision of things. But, in, you know, in saying that, one particular Brisbane brewery had my favourite IPA. They just, they, you know, 
they changed the IPA and I don't drink it anymore. They've, and they've changed a number of their beers, um, if yeah. that's one I'm thinking of. So, uh, yeah, and but it's chasing your market. Now, I guess that's yeah. where knowing what you want to be is a big thing. If you're happy to find your community and make beers to that community and not grow, but it's, isn't that something that's true of the, the, the wine industry to some extent as well? Um, yeah, it is. And, you know, there's a massive difference. And, look, if you use... Um, let's say Penfolds as an example, you know, big, big, big producer, but with arguably um, Australia's best wine in their portfolio. And if you taste through um, 20 Penfolds reds from, you know, Grenache through to Shiraz and even even their sort of quasi-Pinot, there's, there's a house style. They, they all smell and taste of Penfolds over and above variety and vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... You know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know it, but it just is an is. Yeah, but I guess wine has one advantage in that if you want to be a small, uh, you know, winery and you've got a a size that you're happy with, if you've got a product that is in demand, you can increase the price because wine doesn't have a ceiling. Beer, if you're making a beer beer has a much tighter price constraints on it i know but how far has that come like so if we rewind god even a decade Mm. um it was hard to get more than 40 bucks for a carton of beer and we've got bottles out there for 80 bucks Mm. but yeah and but so it has it's changed but you're right like i've got wines for two and a half thousand there would be a lot more margin from the scarcity of again because if you've there's only so much of a wine you can make from that uh, harvest of of grapes if you're going to do a single you know they never divulge how much grange they make though (laughs) (laughs) i i you know i mean that's that's the big difference between say grange and hill of grace and emotionally to me hill of grace is Australia's best wine because it is from a, a finite vineyard with a finite production, mm. whereas Grange comes from an undisclosed number of vineyards each year and it changes, which doesn't make it any less good to taste, but somehow emotionally it's it cheapens it. One of the things I talk about on the podcast a lot is those studies that, you know, perceptional studies where they measure your brain activity and your pleasure centres and they'll give you a glass of wine and say, this is a $15 glass of wine and this is a glass of wine, this is a $75 glass of wine and people will physically experience more pleasure. Out of the 75 from the 70, yeah. just for, and Because when you know something about it, we bring as much to the glass as the glass brings to us in, in mm. those situations and, you know, and that's the way we're wired. Yeah. Um, but yeah. with beer... Um, it's a lot harder to command that price premium um, for something because people instinctively know that it's, you know, coming from, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a brewery is often referred to as a factory, whereas a winery is never called a wine factory, no matter yeah, how. Yeah, correct, yeah. And look, I think I think the economies of beer production are, um, are much easier than the economies of wine production. Yeah. Uh, but- Including time, you know, that you can, you can punch out sort of, Pet Nats and Sauvignon Blancs in a few weeks, but um, to do, you know, a decent barrel aged red, you're looking at sort of one to two plus years, um, yeah. and those two years allows Brett to grow if you're not careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I was thinking before when you were sort of talking about Brett can take over. Um, 
you know, wine has a drinking window as well. So, you know, can you have a Bretna beer that still has an acceptable drinking window before it takes over, or is it completely uncontrollable and you're never going to it's be able to predict? It's pretty uncontrollable, yeah. They'll, they'll gobble up any um, sort of remaining sugars there, you know, not not, not fermentable by Saccharomyces. And, um, but, he, like, here's the thing. It lingers. I've drunk, you know, the, like three months ago, I opened this bottle of red that had been kicking around um, not even in my cellar, like in my kitchen, for 15 years, and it was it was well past dead. And anyway, I thought, oh, I'll open it up and see. Yeah, it was alleged, you know, it looked brown, and I didn't realise that it was a bretty bottle of wine, and the brett was still alive and kicking. The <laughs> wine was absolutely, you know, tuckered, but um, it, it, it was it was bright with brett. So um, I, I think there's a, a longevity to and people, I, I wonder how many of these really old sort of 40, 50, 60 year old wines that people open up and say, oh, but still, we're still lively and rich and, and no, it's just the Brett. Funnily you know? <laughs> enough, I, I had two, um, recently had a night where I sat down and did a side-by-side tasting of two recent Flanders Red Ales that were made by Australian brewers. Um, Bent Spoke uh, did one in a can and um, Stone and Wood, uh, Brad Rogers did one. And they were both, I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of them as I sat there and I was sort of going from one to the other and just relishing the sort of layers of flavour. And But then the next morning I could taste it all the next yeah, day. It was, yeah, a, yeah. it was a really powerful. But that didn't take away my enjoyment of the night At before. The time, yeah. um, it just meant that it's something that I would, it's a sometimes food, not an everyday food. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as a retailer, what advice would you give to um, brewers, you know, wanting to find space on your shelves? Um, I, I know that you're not the head beer buy; you delegate that to people with uh, probably I do, yeah, a, yeah. a wider my range of taste. Talk to my people. Um, <laughs> no, really, it, it's it's become a, a very cluttered market, and we we do stock. And, and I'm just talking about our shelves here. Yep. Um, this isn't yep. advice for people wanting to succeed in, in the brewery business. This is just getting into into our shops. If if you're local um, and you're good, then you're going to be in regardless of if you're in the chains or not. Um, if you're not local and you're in the chains, then we probably will avoid you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the exceptions being like Stone and Wood and Bolter and yeah. things like that that are a very strong brand. The ones that people are going to demand. Yeah. But it's it's about you know for me it's about um, detail in the beers, um, and it, it's about having some point of difference, and that can be. You know, I look at that um, heads of Noosa, yep. which are, you know, the, the, I tasted through the beers, and they're they're sort of, oh, you know, they, there's nothing there that really excites me, but but we, we've put them in because they're. You know, once again, they're, they're not scary beers. There's something a bit different and new that can be that nice stepping stone for yep. punters from conventional markets. And and, and I'll be like, you used a word that frustrates me a little bit. Um, you know, it didn't excite me. And you sort of think, well, when you're talking about the Japanese lager, which is my beach beer yeah um, it's a beautifully made it's so hard to make a lager like that and yet they've just got this really nice nuanced lager yeah, that exactly yeah and i'm sort of thinking this is a beer that i don't want to be excited by no, <laughs> no and that, that's i mean that's kind of my point yep. my point with that it, it's not it's not a, an eight percent 
mm. double IPA that I'm going to go, wow, that's yeah. amazing. But, but you know, like you say, they're, they're really nicely crafted and they fill a spot. And, and in doing that, means I don't have to have Asahi and Coronas and things and I can support um, something smaller. So so I, I think my point of bringing them up is to say everything doesn't have to be um, a wildflower yeah. or or a Pliny. And in their own way, they, they've marked themselves out because they're making lagers. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you know, like that's a, that's a fairly distinct proposition that they've got. But just picking up on that package too. Oh, the package glass and bottle. No, Um, no, for for everything. Yeah. Oh no, I just think packaging is so important on the beer shelf. Yep. Okay. So important. Um, We'll sort of talk. We might even sort of get you to commentate on some of the designs for the um, Gabs uh, design competition. See, see what you think. But it's interesting going back to that whole exciting thing. Even when you were speaking very passionately about the Pliny. The thing that made it so exciting was its balance. Yeah, um, the detail. Yeah. Oh my god, the detail. But is 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 that inherently because a lot of people, particularly in the modern craft beer market, they see excitement as being something that strip- oh, hits you in the head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think the first time I ever tried a Pliny, someone had bought a bottle out here, and um, Les, who used to work for us, he and I cracked one. Um, over lunch, and I was expecting, fresh. yeah, you know, it had come, it had come out a few weeks um, earlier, yep. but yeah, it was pretty fresh, not as fresh as the stuff I was drinking over <laughs> there, but, um, and I was expecting this sort of monster, you know, a bit like the dogfish head, yeah, you know, one twenty. I, I was expecting this sort of monstrous IPA, and and I, like, it, it wasn't that; it was this pretty fine, and then all of a sudden, I, then I went, oh, that's a bit disappointing, and then I. I sort of got into it and went, no, 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 no hello. And it, so it was like coming off a, a, a sort of Barossa Shiraz expectation and drinking a really good burgundy. Just drinking something that is elegant and yeah. well-tooled to oh, use a cartoon. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that guy is so detailed in, in his brewery, um, really detailed. His philosophy about everything is, you know, it's astounding. Okay, so should Australian beer drinkers listening to this go madly in search of grey import piney or should they just be something that no. they if they ever happen to be there and get to visit the brewery yeah don't i mean i bought i bought about six bottles back packaged in my socks and i left <laughs> i left the last one too long so it was probably six weeks in my fridge and this is at two degrees it was in yeah. my fridge the whole time and when i got to drink it i was like ah, um i'd left it too long and, and the magic had gone from it. So it's got to be fresh um, and get a grey market that's come out here that you're going to be disappointed. So uh, That said, I notice you've got stone in your fridge and I, I, it, it, it is one of my little habits is whenever I see stone, I always turn upside down and check out the dates. Yeah, because dates. 10 years ago, I interviewed Greg Cook and he was telling me that you just shouldn't be drinking my beer in Australia. You're not going to get it fresh, as fresh as we want. We're passionate about our beer. And, you know, if, if, if you're not drinking IPA, my beer... It's I mean, the, the hops just curl up and die so quickly. Yeah, but you stock it. Is is that? Yeah, well, it, it comes out cold, so it's yep. you know we know it's shipped properly. And, and you've it got comes the precious because you, you, it was June, the June this year. So we're recording this in mid-August, so yep. it's within the three months that they would consider Fresh, um, yeah. acceptable. Um, so that when stone, you know, started coming, 
bringing out to Australia through experience it they you know they they embarked on this we know it's refrigerated and there's a real sort of certification to the beers. Um, Not at the big boxes where I go to and see it regularly outside yeah. of even the 12 months. Damn, yeah. <laughs> but, and, you know, in saying that, so so before we opened Red Hill here, I was, I was out of a bottle shop for a bit because we were setting up and I went up to one of my local chains and there was Sierra Nevada Northern Hemisphere there. And I was like, oh, great. So I bought myself a six-pack. And I got straight on to our, at that time, Sierra Nevada rep and said, listen, can you add, add to the order four cases of Northern Hemisphere? And he said, no, no, we don't have any. I said, bullshit. <laughs> I've, just, I've just been to my local um, supermarket brand bottle shop and they've got a stack there. And he said, yeah, that's last year's stock. This is coming out in six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's frightening. It's, I mean, it's up to shops to manage yep. their stock. Absolutely. Well, look, I, I, I won't take any further along there, but Tony Harper, thank you very much for joining oh, us Matt, and telling us a little me. bit about, I don't think we've ever had uh, any guest on the program say it's just like sticking your finger up the bum. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's horrid. <laughs> thank you, Tony. And now I've ruined Britannomyces for everyone out there. <laughs> your work here is done. <laughs> All right, Matt. Thanks, mate. And that was Tony Harper. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of this and This Was Beer is a Conversation. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au.